Jan Tomas Gross is a Polish-American historian at Princeton University. He did not mince words speaking about Poland's new law that would criminalize mentioning the complicity of the Polish nation in the crimes of the Holocaust. The Polish authorities want to gag any debate about the complicity of many Poles in the persecution of their Jewish fellow citizens. And of course, they will be the ones who determine what the facts are. I've read many hundreds of survivors' testimony. Under this law, virtually every Jewish survivor of the Holocaust from Poland would have to be prosecuted. In fact, the Polish authorities opened a libel suit against Professor Gross and tried to strip him of an Order of Merit award he'd received from the government. Jews felt threatened again as Holocaust survivors' life stories made them targets of the Polish government. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, a look at how different countries commemorate the Holocaust. Later in the show, how the five remaining members of the Jewish community in Selma, Alabama, maintain their faith. But first, millions of people have visited the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. since it opened in 1993. How does that experience compare to two other major Holocaust museums, the Yad Vashem Museum in Jerusalem or the Jewish Museum of Berlin? Jennifer Hansen Glucklich is a professor of modern languages and literature at the University of Mary Washington. She's the author of Holocaust Memory Reframed, Museums and the Challenges of Representation. Jennifer, you looked in particular at the Holocaust Museums in Washington, Jerusalem, and Berlin. The museum in Berlin fascinates me the most because how does Germany tell its Holocaust story when the crimes are so large? Yes, and that's been a huge challenge in Germany is how does a nation deal with its own crimes? How does it represent itself as a perpetrator? And one of the techniques that the Berlin Museum uses, and you see this all over Germany and Austria too, is that museums tend to focus on the Jewish story and their country as being much more than the Holocaust. So they tell the Holocaust as part of the story of Germans and Jews, not as the story. So they integrate it into a larger story, and that's one of the ways that they deal with it. Another way that that they try to deal with it is that they try to tell the story very much from the point of view of the victims. And this is very important to give them back their voice. But you think about how hard this is for individuals, you know, whether we commit atrocities, sins, or misdeeds, it's hard for us to admit anything. Oh, absolutely. And how do you as an entire people, especially as a people generations later, really own up to the sheer horror of it? Yeah, I mean, and in some way I would say that they don't own up to the sheer horror. Or, well, you think of America, and and you think of America, Native Americans, or the South. That's right, that's right. So it's always a series of steps, I think, coming closer to sort of facing up to our history. And it depends, of course, a lot on the next generations that come up. So for young Germans today, it's not that they bear the guilt of what their relatives, their forefathers did, but they do bear responsibility to remember what happened and to ensure that that doesn't happen again. What tends to be the sentiment in Germany about the Holocaust? Is there discussion of it 
in popular culture? Well, that's really interesting. I think um, one way to think about it is that there's a lot of levels of memory. There is public memory, official memory, where you get these big memorials, like the Memorial to the Murdered Jews of Europe, right in the center of Berlin. And it looks like, oh, the whole country is doing penance. Then there's educational memory in the schools, okay? There's the teaching of the young people about what happened, how it happened. But then you also have what's called private memory, familial memory, and that tends to be more conservative a lot of times. So for example, right after the war, as official memory began to really talk about and pay attention to the Holocaust, private familial memory was still focused on how Germans suffered you know, the bombardments by the Allies. So when you talk about memory in Germany, there's really a lot of different layers of memory. Now, is there controversy focused over new museums being erected in Eastern Europe? There are. It's actually a really sensitive issue right now in countries like Poland and Hungary, for example. They're trying to put together new museums to show the story of Jews in their countries. These are two countries with very complicated histories with their Jewish populations. Poland, Warsaw, already has a Jewish museum, but now they are planning a Holocaust museum in Warsaw. But the problem is, how do you tell that story without also telling the story of Polish anti-Semitism, which was very deeply rooted there long before the Germans arrived? But the official story, the story that the curators and some of the official hired historians are putting together, is one that stresses that the Poles and, you know, in Hungary, this is also the case, they love their Jewish neighbors, and the Germans basically imported anti-Semitism. Germans imported anti-Semitism. What do you mean? Well, there's this sort of perception or this idea that they want to represent in the museum that basically Poland was a great country for Jews to live in, which in some respects was true. But that when the Germans started World War II and invaded, that they brought with them Jew hatred. And that's when the trouble started between Poles and Jews. Any truth to that? Well, I mean, it's certainly true that the Germans instigated World War II. And it's certainly true that, of course, the Holocaust was something that they planned and implemented. But it's also true that it's not an accident that all of the death camps were in Poland. It's not an accident that they found it relatively easy to find collaborators in Poland. And there's a long history of pogroms, you know, uprisings, popular uprisings against Jews in Eastern Europe. And it's the same case in Hungary, where they're putting together an exhibit now for a new museum. It's going to be called the House of Fates in Budapest. And there is a lot of controversy over how to tell the story of the Jews in Hungary. There is a fear among the Jewish community that they're going to end up telling a story that makes it look as if Hungary was the most perfect place in the world for Jews, and Jews were perfectly safe and happy there, no anti-Semitism until the Germans showed up. What gave you the inspiration to look at three of these museums, large ones, one in Berlin, one in Washington, D.C., and one in Jerusalem? Um, Well, it started because I I spend a lot of time in Israel, and um, my husband is Israeli, and we go there a lot. And I visited the new Yad Vashem, and I was just blown away by it. It's, It's such a powerful place, and it tells such a powerful story. But it's a very Israeli story. The narrative really is from the Israeli point of view, and it really leads you to certain conclusions that wouldn't work in any other country. It's in Jerusalem, which is, of course, a holy city, right? 
and the very location, it's next to what's called Mount Herzl, which is the mountain where the National Cemetery is, where they bury all of the most important political leaders. And this is key. The story in Yad Vashem is a Zionist story. It's a story about homecoming and redemption. It's a story about Jews who lived in the diaspora and what happened to them there and how they suffered. But now that Israel is a state, the Jews have a home, and something like this will not happen again. It is a home for all Jews, dead and alive. So you see, it really is a story of homecoming, and the museum ends with redemption. Massively different from what you would get in Berlin, the museum to the six million murdered Jews, where the message is more, this is who they were, and now they're gone. Yes, that's right. The The Berlin Museum, what's, what's really fascinating about this place is that the architecture tells the story of loss. It's a great zinc-clad cement structure, and it's very modern. And on the outside is this shattered Star of David. And the architecture, it's all about, you know, twists and turns and gaps and voids. The whole museum, a third of it is voided space. It's literally built around absence. And the story is, Berlin in particular, but Germany as a whole, has lost this part of its history, part of its soul, and we'll never get it back. But then the permanent exhibition tells a different story. The permanent exhibition is Jews in Germany have a long history. Holocaust is a part of it. And that history continues. This is not the end. So two very different perspectives within one space. Do you think attitudes for most American Jewish citizens are towards towards Germany and the, even the notion of ever living in Germany again? Yeah, it's interesting. It's so mixed. I mean, I've talked to Holocaust survivors who say that they go back to Germany to visit and they love Berlin. And then I talk to other people who don't have any relatives who died in the Holocaust and they say, I will never set foot in Germany. But I think there's a recognition among American Jews that Germany has really come a long way in acknowledging its past, much more than Austria, for example. It, not just in terms of it acknowledging the Holocaust, but you really do see with Germany how much the country, how much the, the young people especially are really struggling to sort of come to terms, as a German term for it, coming to terms with the past, facing up to the past. What, by contrast, do you get from the Holocaust Museum in D.C.? What is the message there? Yeah, it's interesting. The Holocaust Museum in D.C. for an American is a place that makes you feel really good about being an American. It's a story that's told from the point of view of American liberators, right? Um, the very first picture that you see in the permanent exhibition is a big photograph, a blown-up photograph of Ordruf concentration camp in Germany, which was liberated by Americans. And you see the soldiers standing there looking at the carnage left behind by the Germans, and you share their point of view. You're looking at that with them, but you feel that you are on the right side. And it's very much a story about how the United States is the antidote to genocide, persecution, bigotry. The United States set up as the answer to fascism. At the end of the exhibit, you see stories of Jews who left Poland and Germany and immigrated to the United States and married their American Jewish liberators. You know, what could be more perfect solution to the problem of genocide? And it is, in the end, ultimately a feel-good story. Is it missing anything? 
I think there's definitely things that are missing. Um, I think there's too little attention paid to the failure of the United States to do more. For example, there's a very small exhibit, at least there was last time I was there, on why Auschwitz wasn't bombed on the St. Louis. There was a, a ship of Jewish refugees that was supposed to dock and enter the United States, and it was forbidden entry, and it was sent back to Europe. And most of those people ended up dying in camps. Would you be willing to walk us through the Yad Vashem Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem? Sure. When you arrive at Yad Vashem, you enter through this big gateway wall, and it's this big concrete wall. And basically what you have to do is to reach this museum, you have to go through a series of thresholds. This is your first threshold, and it's a big wall, and at the top of it, it says, I will put my breath into you, and you shall live again. I will set you upon your own soil. Now, this is a quote from the book of Ezekiel from the Bible. Obviously, this is a quote about homecoming, right? I will set you upon your own soil. And this sets the tone for the whole experience. And then as you move underneath this gate, you come to a pavilion, and then you get to a bridge, and you cross a bridge. So again, thresholds. And you literally walk into a mountain. You descend into the mountain, and you go down into the ground. So it's very autochthonous. It's rooted in the earth, rooted in the soil. And you move through the museum, through 10 galleries, and it's, it's dark. It's kind of grayish. There's very little light coming in from the skylights above. The passageway itself is designed to affect you viscerally. So when you get to exhibits that are particularly painful and harrowing, like the Auschwitz exhibit, the passageway becomes tighter and it goes down more. When you get to the end of the museum and you reach the final exhibit, which is about the founding of Israel, right, 1948, Israel becomes a state. When you get here, the passageway starts moving upwards, starts opening up. When you finish going through the museum, you walk out onto a terrace in the sunlight. Suddenly, you're out in the open. You're overlooking the Jerusalem hills. It's this moment of freedom and openness and light. And the feeling is redemptive. Whether or not you believe it, you feel it. It's a visceral feeling. One of the most important rooms that I want to mention in, in Yad Vashem is a place called the Hall of Names. And it's a big circular hallway, and it's an archive and a memorial. And within it are uh, some 600 photographs of victims, Holocaust Jewish victims. And it's accompanied, each photograph has a name and a few biographical details, date of birth, date of death. And the idea is to give, so to speak, a presence, a place for victims, a place for people who have no place. Because, of course, most Jewish victims in the Holocaust were not given a proper Jewish burial or any kind of burial at all. So this place is very much about giving the victims a place to be home again, to remember them. Remembrance for Judaism is very much at the heart. Um, there's a, a quote from the Talmud, the secret of redemption is remembrance. Remembrance is the secret of redemption. Remembrance is also key in, in Jewish liturgy when you go to synagogue, right? The Shabbat ritual every Saturday, the yard site, memorial ritual. It's all about remembering the dead, keeping them present. And this is very much the goal of Yad Vashem. Do you think that when the U.S. Holocaust Museum was completed, that there was a feeling of great optimism? Like this, we're looking back, and our, our main charge is simply how to how to talk about how hideous that was and how we overcame it and how we must never go down that dark path again. Whereas now it feels like with a, 
a rise of increasing anti-Semitism, we may feel less optimism. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. I think it's also interesting to ask, is there really a rise in anti-Semitism or is it just becoming more acceptable to be openly anti-Semitic? And the social media and right? echo chamber. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think there's always been anti-Semitism. I think now, I think it's becoming in a strange way more acceptable to be openly anti-Semitic. I think that's one of the things we're seeing. I think one of the really good things about the Holocaust Museum in D.C. is that it recognizes that genocide is something that is still happening. And in the first floor of of the, of the Holocaust Museum, there are changing exhibits that they're always changing. And a lot of times they're about contemporary genocide. So for example, Darfur, Rwanda, and they'll have these exhibits. Um, and when I take my students to the Holocaust Museum, I make sure that they look at that and think about that, that this is not something that's just in the past. This is something that's still happening. What sort of reaction do you see on the part of your students who have not before been to the Holocaust Museum? They're shaken. A lot of them are very shaken. A lot of times what they respond most strongly to is that I always arrange to have a survivor talk to them and tell them their individual story. That's very powerful for them. The problem with the number six million is that it's impossible to visualize. It's so abstract. It's so huge. It's anonymous. When you can learn about one person's story, that's what really sticks. What do your students seem to make of the Holocaust? Do they still feel that visceral horror and connection and need to make sure we never forget? Some of them do. Some of them really do. The more sensitive ones, the ones who are readers, the ones who really connect individually, the ones who have a lot of empathy, and a lot of them do. Some of them do not. Some of them say, this is, in, this is distant history. This has nothing to do with me. And of course, there have been other horrible genocides and catastrophes in history, right? But the one thing I try to explain to my students is that by keeping it alive, it's not that we're silencing other people's stories. We're not saying these are the only victims that matter, right? We're saying that we have to keep the story alive because it teaches us a lot, not just about the past, but about our present. It helps us learn how to be vigilant, how to notice right, in our own society when we start going down a path that could lead to something like that. So when you start treating people who are different as being less human, minimizing their rights. So these kinds of attitudes still exist all the time in our society. And so I say, well, think of this as not just something that happened, but something that could always happen again. This threat is always with us. And it could be in a different form. It could be a different people. But we have to stay vigilant to make sure it doesn't. And so that's one of the things that I try to impress upon them. Jennifer, thank you for sharing your insights on this on With Good Reason. Of course. Thank you. Jennifer Hansen Glucklick is a professor of modern language and literatures at the University of Mary Washington and is the author of Holocaust Memory Reframed, Museums and the Challenges of Representation. Selma, Alabama is a city known more for civil rights than synagogues, However, it once had a thriving Jewish community. Amy Milligan is a professor of Jewish studies and women's studies at Old Dominion University. Her research on marginalized Jewish voices has taken her to some unexpected places, but even she was surprised to find herself in Selma 
meeting the last remnants of the Jewish community there. Amy, what is the history behind the Jewish population originally in Selma, Alabama? Selma has a really long Jewish history, as much of the South does. So the first Jewish settlers in Selma came in the 1830s and really built a thriving community there, occupying most of the main downtown streets with their businesses, building a synagogue, and even creating their own social club, the Harmony Club. Where did the earliest Selma Jewish residents come from? So the earliest settlers were Sephardic Jews, which means that they were from North Africa and Spain. And about 10, 15 years later, we started seeing Jews immigrating to Selma from Germany and then later from Eastern Europe. How would they have known about America and why were they leaving those countries? Sure. Well, it was a really tumultuous time for a lot of Jews, especially in Eastern Europe. Jews were not able to own businesses anymore. They were being forced out of their properties and were facing significant violence. And so the United States represented this, you know, golden dream of opportunity and prosperity and economic security for them. How would they know to come to Selma, though? Well, some Jews came to the area because other Jews were already there. It was also right along the trade routes in the Black Belt of Alabama. So there was a lot of cotton going through the area. And it was a city where people could really grow their businesses. So it made sense to go there because it was a prosperous city. How do you think they were perceived by the the white Christian community of the 1800s? They were able to really quickly assimilate. I think one of the things that was important for Jews in Selma at the time was to really show how American they were. And so that meant that they became a big part of the city. So Selma had three Jewish mayors. They had Jews who were elected to their city council, their water commissioner, all different types of city roles, because not only did they want to become Americans, they also wanted to become Selmians. What was life like for the Jewish population of Selma at the time of the Edmund Pettus Bridge March and the Bloody Sunday that evolved there in 1965. Living as a Jew in Selma during that time was difficult because they were really divided as a congregation, much like most of white people in the South were. And so we saw some really strong segregationists in the congregation and a lot of folks who really believed that integration was the only thing that was a viable solution to heal America. They were fairly middle of the road to liberal, but certainly they had some voices that um, did oppose integration. Did they fear retribution if they were to side with the African Americans during the civil rights era? I think some of the local businesses did. Certainly they were worried about their businesses being boycotted. But as I've been interviewing folks, I hear a lot of stories that are really touching Uh, from one family, someone that worked for them, uh, when she was sitting outside of the courthouse trying to register to vote, the mother of the family went every day with a sack lunch to give to her and to some of her friends who were there because she said no one should have to go hungry while they wait to register to vote. One of the women that I interviewed told me when she returned home from college during the civil rights era, she went down to the courthouse and stood outside and said, you know, if you're not willing to register this person to vote, I'll go in and I'll tell them who my daddy is and I'll give his name. And of course, you know, her parents were like, what are you thinking? <laughs> you know, because this is a really tumultuous time and you're a young woman. And she said, yeah, but you know, I've been to college and now I know better. And so she stood there for a couple of days and would try to go in and out with different people and make sure that they were able to register to vote. 
at its height, at its peak, how large was the Jewish population of Selma? They had over 300 members at their peak. Why did that thriving community eventually start to lose size? I think it's really the story of the American dream. So we're talking about families who settled to build something for their children. And when they educated their children, they said, you know, go on to college. I want you to have what I didn't have. So don't come back to the family store. Go to one of the larger cities. And when did the population actually start to decline? Uh, It hit its peak in the late 1930s, early 1940s. I was still holding strong with over 200 members in the early 1980s, and that's when we really start to see the decline. How many now, would you say? Uh, There are fewer than 10. Um, There are about five members right now still of the temple. So only a handful of Jews left in Selma in the entire city? Right. There are larger populations of Jews in cities like Birmingham, but... In Selma, at least, I think um, it's not surprising because we're seeing an aging congregation and they're just facing some of the realities of what that means for them. How hard it must be for this handful of people trying to maintain their synagogue in Selma with so few. I mean, do they even have a rabbi? And they haven't had a rabbi since the 1970s. There's members of the congregation who have stepped forward to conduct funerals, to help celebrate holidays. And I think that there's something really important about that because they spend time thinking about how they want to be Jewish. And they think a lot about what does it mean to celebrate this holiday? What are the important parts of it? And how do we pull them out so that we're still in community with one another? And it's something that those of us who are in larger congregations don't always have to think about. We can just arrive for the holiday and it's taken care of for us. What do you think first most resonated with you, with this tiny Jewish community in Selma? Why did you relate so well to them? I kind of jokingly say sometimes that I didn't pick this project, it picked me. I call them my Selma family now, and so I can't wait to go back. I have taken my husband, my mom's about to go with me. It's really a community that I feel very much invested in, more so than some of the other communities that I've worked with. I think that it's not always the sad story that everyone wants to make it out to be. It's actually a story of great hope. It's a story of dreams. And it's the story of people who have really invested into their communities. They've woven themselves into the tapestry of what it means to be Southern, what it means to be Jewish, and what it means to be a Southern Jew. And we really have to take all of those things together to understand who they are. Sometimes those voices are even more important because they're really grappling with the things that we're dealing with as a nation and as a country. Did anyone you interviewed ever talk about anti-Semitism there? I've asked that really directly in all of my interviews. And what I found is that people have different, different answers, like you would expect. By and large, though, almost everyone says that they really didn't experience it as much until they moved away from Selma. That's not to say that there wasn't sometimes ignorance, but I think that you can expect that in any community when you belong to a minority religion. But by and large, there was a general acceptance of Jews in Selma. Do you relate in any ways to their struggle to maintain the synagogue in this small community? Something that's been really special for me is that there's a connection now from my temple in Norfolk to this temple in Selma. And so we have all of these moments where, for example, if someone is sick, that we're able to add them to our list for praying for those who are sick or need healing. And 
one of the women that I was speaking to said, you know, I try to think about that sometimes on Friday nights because I do need some healing right now. You tell me what time you guys are worshiping so that I can know that some people are sending good vibes my way. And I think that there's a, a really powerful story of community and connection that defies miles that are between congregations. Amy Milligan is professor of Jewish studies and women's studies at Old Dominion University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back from Virginia Humanities. This is With Good Reason. Commodore Uriah Phillips Levy was the first Jewish American to reach that rank in the United States Navy. Not only was he instrumental in eliminating the Navy's practice of flogging, he also rescued Thomas Jefferson's Monticello from ruin, and the Levy family was instrumental in maintaining the estate right up to the beginning of the 20th century. Melvin Yurofsky is a professor emeritus of history at Virginia Commonwealth University. He's the author of The Levy Family in Monticello, 1834 to 1923, Saving Thomas Jefferson's House. Melvin, do we know a lot about the early life of Uriah Phillips Levy? Well, we have a lot more information now than we used to, but there's still enormous gaps in what we know about him. He was born in Philadelphia to a Jewish mercantile family, not rich nor poor, lived near the waterfront, played there, and was taken up, as many boys are, although not usually little Jewish boys, into going to sea. And he did, and that was his home for the next 50, 60 years. He actually ran away from home at a very young age. Well, he sort of ran away from home. Uh, His parents agreed to it. And there's an apocryphal story that when he signed on to his first merchant ship, um, he told the captain he had to be back in Philadelphia in time for his bar mitzvah. I think it's apocryphal, but it's a great story anyway. (laughs) Is it true he went away at age 10? Or is that apocryphal too? No, no. He left at an early age, but that would be the age that cabin boys would start with. If you've seen the Hornblower series on uh, BBC and everything, uh, that's absolutely accurate. They took these little boys and put them on the ships, and these became the officers of the future. And he did go on to an illustrious career in the Navy. Against all odds, one might add, he um, was captured in the War of 1812, uh, during which time he took the opportunity to learn French. He had a varied naval career. There were a number of court-martials, all of which he was able to win. And he wound up, prior to the Civil War and his last command, being a Commodore. Now, a Commodore was the title given to whoever commanded a group of ships. How does someone become Commodore in the U.S. Navy after having been court-martialed on numerous occasions? Well, because he beats it each time, and every time he wins, it makes him that much harder to attack the next time. By the time he had been through the last court-martial, he was good as gold. And why was he being court-martialed? Well, there are a variety of reasons. Uh, I would think anti-Semitism was initially a main reason. In fact, we do have evidence that a couple of the early fights that he got into, the duels, were because people called him uh, racial epithets. And then after he got into the duel, uh, there would be a court-martial because dueling was illegal. 
Uh, later on, his policies, especially regarded flogging, aroused a great deal of ire among many officers of the Navy. Um, we always flogged. Why should we give it up? And so his policies and the fact that by ab abandoning flogging, he apparently ran v happy ships that performed well. This irritated a number of people. The last two court-martials were pretty much made-up charges that he easily defeated. And the last, uh, very last court-martial, he hired an attorney, and they published um, the brief in the case, which brought him an enormous amount of renown and made him just about bulletproof after that. And when he demanded you know, an assignment to see, they couldn't say no because he was so well-known at this point. And when, in fact, he wanted to take his wife along an uh, unheard-of liberty, they couldn't say no to that either. So um, he is the first and maybe the only U.S. Commodore to ever travel to the Mediterranean uh, with his young wife in tow, and she, of course, was the head of the ship. Levy had tremendous admiration for Thomas Jefferson. How did that come about? Jefferson is considered the father of religious liberty in the United States, starting with the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom. For Jews, this meant a great deal. Um, the two if you want to, foundation documents for religious freedom as far as Jews are concerned in the United States, uh, or three are the Virginia Statute, the First Amendment, and Washington's letter to the Newport Congregation. Jefferson, of course, was the father of two of those, and he had a hand in the third. And he preached religious liberty. It wasn't just something that he quietly believed. Uh, we have loads of documents. And even in his own time, Jefferson was seen as a, a champion of religious freedom. That's why Jews came to the United States, to be able to live freely. Did Jefferson reciprocate Levy's affection for him, and did he have high regard for Jews in the United States? Jefferson had not a high regard for Judaism as a religion. He was not anti-Semitic in that he did not have you know, prejudice against individual Jews. But uh, he thought that Judaism as a religion was archaic, and he said this in private letters. But he was an advocate of religious freedom for the Jews. The Virginia Statute applied not just to Baptists and Christians, it applied to everybody. In this, I think Jefferson was very uh, sincere. He may not have cared for the religion of the Jews, but he did believe that they had the right to practice that religion without any interference by the state. How, how did he think Judaism was archaic? Jefferson was a deist uh, who believed in a god, but a god who was sort of akin to Newton's watchmaker. He wound up the universe, and then he didn't get involved. Any religion which involved the rituals of praise to this force, of fear of this force, uh, struck Jefferson as archaic. Uh, he had no more use for Roman Catholicism than he did for Judaism. That was just his own religious beliefs. He went through, there's a very famous book called The Jefferson Bible, in which he went through the New Testament and excised what he considered all the superstitions and left just uh, Jesus' ethical state statements. So Jefferson was not a contemporary of Levy's. Jefferson had died by the time Levy was achieving his full stature as a careerist? Right. Um, Jefferson died in um, 1826 on July 4th. He died greatly in debt, and Monticello and all its appurtenances, including its slaves, had to be put on the auction block. In fact, it would be another 30 or 40 years before his grandchildren could erase his debt. But Monticello went on the block. It was bought up by a pharmacist in Charlottesville, tried to turn it into a silkworm farm. And then some friends of Jefferson wanted to buy it back for the family, 
for Jefferson's daughter and her children. They weren't able to raise the money on it, but Levy heard about it. In fact, he was approached to make a contribution for it. And when he heard about it, he decided he would buy Monticello. He went there from Washington, D.C., where he had just given a statue of Jefferson to the people of the United States. It is the only privately funded statue in the capital of the United States. Where did he get the statue? How was it commissioned? It was made in France. He commissioned it uh, by one of uh, the great sculptors of France, had it shipped over. There are two copies of it. One is in City Hall in New York, uh, which is the plaster model that was used for it, but the marble version is in the Capitol in Washington, D.C. So was the purchase of Monticello the move of a very shrewd real estate magnate, which he indeed was, or was it his love of Jefferson and his desire to showcase his house? It has to be his love of Jefferson because he never made money on Monticello, in fact, poured He and his nephew both poured loads of money into Monticello to maintain it, to preserve it. Uh, This was an act of, um, one might almost say, piety. And while he lived there, he never closed Jefferson's house to pilgrims who would come there. That part of the year when he wasn't in New York or he wasn't at sea, usually it would be in the summer. It's much nicer, you know, up on the hill in the summer than it is at other times of the year. Uh, Fortunately, Jefferson left very detailed plans regarding gardening, uh, the architecture of the house, different things. And Uriah and his nephew both tried to restore Monticello as best they could. But on the eve of the Civil War, Uriah Levy had managed to get Monticello back in as good a condition as it had ever been in Jefferson's lifetime. Uriah left a very complicated will that uh, he wanted to leave Monticello to the people of the United States to be a home for um, orphans of seamen. And in the uh, 1860s, there were several problems, one of which was that Monticello was behind enemy lines during the war between the states. Second, the laws on inheritance and bequests favored active use of property, not this sort of charitable use. So he, he had been a very shrewd businessman, had built up this fortune, which is how he was able to finance Monticello, And the family wanted to get their hands on it. So they broke the will, and then after the war, they broke the will in Virginia as well. So by the time the Jefferson Foundation acquires the property or is given the property in 1923, the property's in good condition? It's in excellent condition. Um, But Jefferson Levy's fortunes are not. He lost a great deal in the post-war depression following World War I. And he had been under a lot of pressure to sell it to the government of the United States. Uh, There was a campaign to turn Monticello into a national monument. Then comes World War I, and people are not interested anymore. Then the Thomas Jefferson Foundation is put together after the war, and Levy sells it to them. When he signs the papers, he says it's the saddest day of his life, and he dies just a few months later. The Jefferson Foundation, for many years, refused to recognize the role the Levy family played in saving Monticello. Is that the case? Why do you think that Yes, is? they did, and there are two reasons for this. They saw their mandate to preserve Jefferson's legacy. Monticello is to be a shrine to Thomas Jefferson, and they weren't really interested in anything that happened between the time of Jefferson's death in 1920, 1826 and the time they purchased it a century later. And then uh, there were some directors who, unfortunately, as the record shows, were anti-Semitic and didn't want to have anything to do with a Jew at Monticello. 
How's Uriah Levy remembered today? There was a World War II destroyer named after him. Well, actually, there's been quite a bit written on him um, over the last several years. Uh, There have been two books, and what I understand is an exceedingly beautiful chapel at the Naval Academy. A Jewish chapel has been opened, and it's called the Uriah Phillips Levy Chapel. And it has gotten just rave reviews for its architecture, its spirituality, and everything. So he's being remembered quite a bit. There was a smaller chapel, which I think may still be in existence, down at the Norfolk Naval Base that was opened many years ago and was also named after him. Melvin Yurofsky is a professor emeritus of history at Virginia Commonwealth University and the author of The Levy Family in Monticello, 1834 to 1923, Saving Thomas Jefferson's House. Coming up next, the Jewish roots of the Sorcerer's Apprentice. Beginning in the Middle Ages, the legend of the golem appeared among Jewish people. The golem was a mythical creature made of mud, created to save the Jews from their oppressors. Our next guest is David Metzger, a professor of English at Old Dominion University. He says the legend of the golem still resonates with Jewish writers today. Well, a golem is an artificial being created from the earth. Some people call it, you know, the Jewish... Frankenstein. Starting in the Middle Ages and then on, the word golem becomes associated with these artificial beings made from earth. Was there a certain procedure for making a golem? Yeah, I was trying to think in terms of the basic materials. You need some earth, some water. In some stories, you, you need a piece of paper on which you'll write the name of, of God, and then you'll place that in the mouth of the golem, and it's precisely that which animates the golem. The golem's clearly a mythical creature. No one at any point through time ever thought, there are golems out there. I guess I'd probably say maybe people didn't believe in the golem, but I I do think that there's evidence that people hoped for a golem. When did the legend of the golem originate? Well, the golem that is of interest to modern writers originated around the uh, second half of the 18th century. And then all these golem legends that were associated with different rabbis started to become focused or associated with a single rabbi, Rabbi Judah ben Bezalel of Prague. What sort of powers was a golem believed to have? And I guess this is hard to answer because as centuries went by, the so-called golem took many different forms and had many different powers depending on who was telling the legend. Right. In some of the stories, the golem just keeps on growing. And that's actually then, you know, the beginning of the golem stories that suggest uh, a golem might be nice to have to do some things around the house. A golem might be nice to help protect you against your enemies. But the problem is they keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And what are you to do with them? You know, when they lay around the house, they really begin to lay around the house. So if you have this creature that keeps growing and growing every day, at some point, it'll become dangerous living with it. You might ask it to go get a pail of water, and it turns around and smacks somebody in the head. Why is this reminding me of the sorcerer's apprentice and the broom that won't stop? Well, because there's actually a golem story 
uh, about Rabbi Lowe's wife, who is just sick and tired of going to the well to get water. And she thinks, well, we've got this golem, and the golem isn't doing anything. Why can't the golem go get some water? Well, guess what? She forgets to tell the golem to stop. So the golem <laughs> spends all day putting water in this basin, and she comes home, and the house is flooded. There's water out in the street. And the sorcerer's apprentice takes that golem story and turns it into a broom. So who borrowed from the golem and was inspired by the golem to create the Sorcerer's Apprentice? I think it was Goethe who wrote the poem The Sorcerer's Apprentice. And then the Fantasia story was taken up from Goethe's rendering of the the story, which he also got from uh, some German folktales as well. If the golem is just a legend, a sort of Paul Bunyan, King Kong, or Superman Mm -hmm. creature, how did it come to be meaningful to Jews early on in the early centuries? I think that the golem legend takes on a significance mainly in the late 19th century. And it was actually as a response to uh, blood libel accusations that were continuing in Eastern European countries. What is blood libel? Uh, Blood libel is, is an accusation of, I know you killed my kid, you dirty Jew, because you need an innocent's blood in order to mix with the matzah to make your unleavened bread for Passover. Some people may recognize uh, the blood libel story if they've had an English lit class because Chaucer's Prioress tells a blood libel story, a very famous one that occurred in 1255 associated with Hugh of St. Lincoln. So you're saying not only was there this fictitious story, let's say, in Chaucer, but there was a period around that time where these kinds of beliefs and accusations were held by Christians and non-Jews, and it was devastating to the Jewish population. Yes, actually, the Chaucer story is based on an actual blood libel accusation, and Hugh of St. Lincoln was uh, beatified. So if the Jews were accused of being monsters, how was the golem? who was, in a sense, a monster, a response to the accusation. How did this mythical creature assuage this feeling of desperation on the part of the Jews? In response to an absolutely irrational construction of the Jew as this blood drinker, I would suggest that you have the construction of the golem as a truthful non-Jew. After all, the golem, not its creator, could go out into the non-Jewish community and collect information. So how do we reconcile these images of the golem with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein? It's said that Mary Shelley drew on the legend of the golem for her novel about Frankenstein. Well, if you can imagine, you know, if the golem is the final demonstration of the, the power of human comprehension, imagine that that isn't necessarily a positive thing, that knowledge might turn you know, around and, and bite us. And I think the, the Frankenstein story takes up that theme of the golem as the final exam for a rabbi, the final demonstration of his knowledge and, su- and suggests, you know, the path toward knowledge also leads to uh, certain perils or risks associated with it, which leads, of course, you know, later on to contemporary renderings of robots and such, or uh, computers or artificial intelligence. Similar to this, in a, a collection that was edited by Judah Rosenberg and published in uh, 19, 
1909 under the title Niflaot Maharal Im Hagolim, the, the miraculous deeds of Rabbi Lowe with the golem, he actually has the golem falling in love. It doesn't know how to love, and what it loves isn't really its better half. After all, it's a woman, not a golem. And the golem then runs throughout the, the Jewish community, destroying homes, setting buildings on fire and such. What lesson do we take from that? Or how does that reflect the human yeah. experience in some way? Yeah, I, I guess that's what I find most interesting about the golem stories is that I think we talk about the golem or we become interested in the golem or maybe even people create the golem in order to talk about what it means to be human when we don't really know what it means <laughs> to be human. <laughs> the golem, curiously enough, I think, is created as a semblance of the human that allows us to explore what it means to be a human who has questions about how to go about the business of being human. Does reference to the golem persist even now in the most popular Jewish writers of our time? Oh, uh, there's a, a wonderful novel by Cynthia Ozick called The Puttermesser Papers. It was a nominee for the National Book Award, and she has a mayor of New York create a golem. Actually, someone who, who loses her job in the accounting office because she has been accused of doing a, a poor job, she creates a golem who then helps her to campaign to become the mayor of New York. You may be familiar with the comic book The Fantastic Four. One of the characters, Benjamin Grimm, is based on the figure of a golem. He's, uh, Benjamin Grimm is the rock man, the, the super strong fellow. Also, you have... Um, a golem moment in uh, the Incredible Hulk comic books. The, the Incredible Hulk, for some reason, is in Eastern Europe. Well, he's near the site of the Golem Museum in Prague. Exactly. <laughs> and guess what a young girl mistakes him for? Hmm. The golem. Ah. And at that point, too, the Benjamin Grimm character, the thing, tells us that he is Jewish. So then the golem becomes for modern Jewish writers, this figure of the modern Jew who seems to have, you know, two selves. You have your golem self that you send outside to do the busy work or the golem side that everyone can see, everyone gets along with and says nice things about. And then there's this, this other side that is not the, the golem of society, but the Jewish side. One of the things that attracts modern writers to the idea of the golem is that there is still something that's beyond our comprehension. There's still a place for the unexplicable to happen. David Metzger is a professor of English at Old Dominion University. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, a National Cancer Institute-designated cancer center researching and developing the treatments of tomorrow 
uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. For the podcast or for a transcript of the show, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.